Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. So this week we're talking as Rishi Sunak is reshuffling his cabinet for the first time since becoming Prime Minister. But as we've said from the very beginning of this podcast, we're not interested in chasing events as they happen, talking about uh, the immediate goings on in Westminster. We're going to be returning to that issue very soon and how it affects the next election in 2024. But this week we're going to be focusing on a different election, the biggest election perhaps in any of our lifetimes, the one that's happening in the United States next year. So the question we're going to ask this week is, what's at stake in the next US presidential election around American policy towards the Middle East, towards Ukraine and towards China? And particularly so if Donald Trump ends up being the Republican Party candidate again. Not Al-Qaeda, he said Russia in the 1980s or now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. I have directed my national security team to make our presence and mission in the Asia-Pacific a top priority. The United States is a Pacific power, and we are here to stay. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. China ate your lunch, Joe. We're the United States of America, for God's sake. The most powerful nation in the history, not in the world, in the history of the world. The history of the world. So, Helen, to get a grip on 2024 and its sort of crucial importance to our world. We thought we'd go back to 2008 and the Obama presidency, really. A look at the Obama presidency and then into Donald Trump's, Joe Biden's, and then how that all sets us up for potentially a, a second Trump term or a second Biden term. We want to focus on three of the most important issues, I think. Russia, the Middle East, and China. And they're absolutely crucial, all of them, 
to everything that's going on right now that, you know, right, what's happening in Israel and Gaza, what's happening in Ukraine. And of course, that sort of looming presence of China in all of these discussions. So 2008, what is the sort of the most important way of understanding the Obama foreign policy, do you think? We, we were talking earlier about the pivot to Asia that began in 2011. Do you think that's the kind of the first real moment where we start to see a, a sort of grand frame of Obamaism? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, yes, in the sense that that's the point where we can see him trying to do something that's different, mm -hmm. at least in his mind, that's different. I think, though, in order to understand how he understood that as different, we need to go back to the 2008 election and the circumstances in which Obama won the presidency. And I'm including in that his victory over Hillary Clinton yeah. in the contest for the Democratic It's nomination. almost like two elections he had to yeah. win, yeah. And that... Central to both, I think, was his opposition to the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because if you look at the policy positions of Obama and Hillary Clinton in 2008, there was very little difference between them. The thing that he was able to use to frame his candidature in a policy sense was, I was opposed to Iraq. She supported the Iraq mm -hmm. war. Yeah. And then if you look at the general election with John McCain, John McCain had also been a fairly enthusiastic proponent of the Iraq war, he was able to use that against McCain as well. So I think that there's, an, and there's a context to that in the sense that the Democrats had used the Iraq issue in 2006 midterm elections mm -hmm. to win control um, of the of the Senate. So yeah. the idea that Obama wasn't going to do Middle Eastern wars, I think was like baked into the Obama presidency from the beginning. And then, and, and there's another aspect to this, which we'll come to in a moment, perhaps, but then the pivot to Asia was, we don't need to do the Middle East any longer. I'm getting the troops out of Iraq. Yeah. He'd set a deadline for that that was going to happen before the next election, 2012. And then, and we've talked about this before, I know, is, is as the United States shale oil boom was taking off, that seemed to open the opportunity that America wouldn't need so much oil from the Middle East. So you could do this strategic pivot away from the Middle East to China. Yeah, so is it two things then that are driving that Obama foreign policy, or three things? There's one, there's sort of political interest, you know, it just makes sense for him to make hay with the fact that he was the only major candidate who was opposed to the Iraq war. You know, that was the, that we, we've seen that and we've talked about that happen in the UK as well, that the candidates who were opposed to the Iraq war do uh, benefit enormously, and understandably so. And then you have two things. One is foreign policy is failing, you know, that Iraq has been a failure, we need to get out. And we can get out because we can afford to, and we need to like start focusing on this bigger threat, which is China. Is it framed as a threat then or an opportunity? Because it's all yeah. about that's where we need to switch to. We're becoming a, a Pacific power rather than a, an Atlantic power. I think it's what's really interesting about this is that Obama kind of is doing two things at least that are pulling in somewhat opposite directions, mm -hmm. I think. The first is that it is about framing, as you said, is he does want to say that the United States will be a Pacific power. Mm -hmm. I think he makes quite a lot in that of presenting himself as someone from Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, and that he's got a Pacific mind. And he's lived in Indonesia, right? He's lived in Indonesia. Yeah. And he doesn't he give the pivot to Asia speech in Somewhere in Australia? Yeah, he gives it to the uh, Australian Parliament, I think, in Canberra. It's a great, it's one of these sort of set piece moments 
I think it was written by a guy called Kirk Campbell, who would go on to play an important role in the Biden administration as well. It's a very thought through moment that was designed to be a grand moment. It's like, look, these are our allies in Australia. This is the future. I think that was the the idea. If you look at it in content terms, there's not so much to it, I think. There's clearly some movement of like military force, naval force mm-hmm. that moves away from the Middle East to the Pacific. If you look at it in terms of the e- economic side of the relationship, what you see is him trying to construct this trade area, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and again, note the Pacific, in the title that would exclude China. Yeah. So in some sense, it was kind of like trying to somewhat isolate China within the region. But the there contain. isn't. Yeah, but there isn't anything that's confrontational about China's trade practices in the way in which there will be under both his successors. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the question of the, the way in which China was building up um, essentially some of those South Sea islands for military purposes or creating artificial islands, there's very little reaction from the Obama administration to that. And I think part of the reason for why actually in practice it's quite a cautious turn is because at the same time he's trying to get an agreement with Xi Jinping about climate change Mm -hmm. so that preceding the Paris agreement that there's a bilateral, I think it's 2014, a bilateral US-China agreement on climate change that Obama goes to China to do. So on the one hand, he's making this big statement about China. But on the other hand, I don't think you could really say it was moving towards a confront China position. No, but but he's also trying to confront what he sees. And I think it was it was his presidency or or his his administration's phrase, confronting the blob, the foreign policy Mm -hmm. blob in Washington, which from his perspective was the sort of failed elite that had got America into difficulty in Iraq. It had the good war in quotes in Afghanistan and the bad war in Iraq. And this was the blob that was constantly looking for confrontation with China, confrontation with Russia, confrontation, you know, everywhere. And he thought you had to resist it. Like the president's job was to resist the blob. And McCain was part of that, obviously, but so was Hillary Clinton. Even though she was his secretary of state. (laughs) Right. But this is the constant challenge with Obama, isn't it? And he is, and him and he's now would come to almost symbolize the blob in in a way, or the sort of, he's the sort of the liberal hero of, of that world. Although I think there is tension there. And obviously Hillary Clinton is a far better representative of that foreign policy elite in Washington. But he is almost immediately drawn back from the moment he's talking about a pivot to Asia. You've got the Syrian civil war kicking off in the same year, 2011, which then leads you up to his sort of famous red line moment, which he continues to maintain is this moment of triumph for him in that he resists being sucked into this sort of hellish civil war in the Middle East, another war that would take America's... Uh, effort, troops, money, all of that. And he's able to resist it and to win concessions from uh, ratcheting up the pressure. So his great defense is that chemical weapons were removed from Syria at that time, negotiating through Putin, and that this was a triumph for the United States. I think that is a very hard sell now when you look back at 2013, 14, to make that case, because within a year, you have Russia invading Crimea, and within two years, you have Russia intervening in Syria itself. So I think it's a 
it's still the most contentious moment in the Obama presidency, I think. Well, I, I think there's quite a lot going on in what you've just said, there, Tom, because we've got Russia in the picture yeah. and we've got the Middle East in the picture via Syria, but there's obviously something going else on in the Middle East, which is the Iran question and indeed to some extent the Israel question yeah. as well. So on Iran, part of the pivot away from the Middle East in the medium to long term is supposed to be rapprochement with Iran. Mm-hmm. But that first means bringing Iran to the negotiating table about a nuclear deal. So the first thing that has to be done in order to, if you like, semi-normalize at least relations with Iran is to put tougher sanctions on Iran, particularly where Iran's oil exports are concerned. That needs the European Union countries on side. And this is where the shale oil boom comes into it because it then looks like it's possible, at least Obama convinces himself that it's possible, that as long as the price of oil doesn't go too high, and this is a point when it, oil prices are higher than they are now, so they're more like um, in the $100 a barrel range, um, that the European Union countries will support sanctions as that they do. So you sanction Iran, you then get Iran to the negotiating table, you get them to sign up to a nuclear deal, then you remove the sanctions, mm-hmm. and then you can move forward with more commercial deals, not just between American companies and Iran, but particularly perhaps European countries and Iran. And then you can even more concentrate on China because you don't have to worry about Iran yeah. so much. It's a nice theory. At the same time is, is obviously that's causes a lot of unhappiness in Israel, as we talked about in our episode on Israel. In that period, we have Israel staging an intervention in Gaza, mm-hmm. which Obama sort of really, I think, limits what they can do in that respect. So you have a deterioration in relations with Israel during the Obama presidency. The Saudis are very unhappy, both about the Iran nuclear deal. Then they're unhappy about him not sticking to his red line in Syria. So you have deterioration in US-Saudi relations as well. And then we have got the Russia question, as you said, because it isn't simply a case of what's going on in Ukraine, which we'll come back to in a moment. But the fact that Russia is acting as a power broker in the Middle East yeah. through this period. It, Russia plays a part in bringing Iran to the negotiating table for the Iran nuclear deal. And then three months later, after that agreement's reached, it's two or three months later, Russia's intervening in Syria. Yeah. I find it very hard to try and judge the Obama foreign policy because when you listen to him, it can be quite persuasive. Say on, on Russia, what was his sort of nickname in the foreign office here? I think it was like Spock because he was just too rational and didn't have that kind of, he wouldn't be let his emotions sort of draw him into these conflicts. And he had this argument about Russia, which is like, look, we're the United States and we're just endlessly bogged down in the Middle East. And it's not been to our benefit. You know, we've had, we've, we haven't even mentioned Libya yet, but you've got Syria, you've got Libya, you've got Iraq, you've got Afghanistan. We're overstretched, essentially, is the argument. And we've made stupid decisions. What was his phrase again? Don't do stupid shit. That was his yeah. foreign policy. And his argument was that they had done stupid shit too often. And then he looked at Russia and said, well, that's what they're doing. Now, Russia, if we can't afford to do this, there's no way Russia can afford to take on the kind of commitments that it's taking to be a player in North Africa, across the Sahel, in the Middle East, and then fighting a land war. Or It wasn't yet fighting a land law as such. It was almost like a proxy war at the time, wasn't it, in Ukraine. But it can't afford all this. And so it will pay 
a heavy price in the long term. So it just makes sense for the Americans to stay out, let Russia fail, you know, build alliances with European partners to impose sanctions, sensible, small sanctions that build up over time, hem Russia in and let us concentrate on China. That's the sort of the grand strategy as I understand it. And yet another way of looking, I mean, because that, in some sense that sounds sensible to me, but then in, in another way you look at it and you think, but then Russia just seems to be going step by step more powerful and more influential. And America is losing influence in a part of the world that it, it just is not able to just leave, to just pull up and leave and turn to China. It's just not that simple. No, I mean, if you look at the Obama foreign policy in the Middle East in his second term, you have him having to send at least the Air Force back into, or part of the Air Force back into both Iraq um, and into um, Syria against ISIS. Yeah. Because 2014 is the year in which the caliphate emerges. Mm -hmm in particularly and obviously in Iraqi territory and Syrian territory and some of Libya. And I think that this idea that he's had that actually Russia just doesn't matter yeah, is really entirely exposed. And the Middle East doesn't matter in a way. In well, I think that the Middle East, the, on the question of like the Middle East, I think you can say that he never quite manages in a way to fulfill his own promise on that because he's always got to deal with the Iran question right till the end of his presidency and in that respect. But if we go back to the 2012 election when he's yeah. running against Mitt Romney as the um, Republican candidate, Mitt Romney is basically saying it's Russia that's the problem. Yeah. That's his foreign policy critique of Obama. And Obama says, I think it's in the third presidential debate, mocks Romney and he says, quote, and then and the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back again because the Cold War's been over for 20 years. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that when Obama is effectively pressed as to what he thinks of as the number one problem for American foreign policy at that point, he says Al-Qaeda. Right. He doesn't yeah. say China. China. Right. He's still in a mindset, in, which is obviously a Middle Eastern way of thinking. It's put, that's putting the Middle East at the, uh, at the center of... Things. So even in his own terms, I think it's really quite contradictory. Before we get on, as you say, Tom, to the way that actually Russia just grows in influence, including helping Obama do things that he wants to do himself. So it's Putin who helps him get out of the red line over the chemical weapons issue by persuading Assad to give them up. It's Putin who helps him get the Iran nuclear deal. By the time of I think 2016, you're talking about, at least in the, I think from the period from about June to maybe September, you're talking about planning for joint American-Russian military action against ISIS. Yeah, incredible. In Syria. I think I mentioned this to you before, Helen, but Trump comes in at this point, and I, and I think a, a lot of people say oh, he's the emperor with no clothes, but I've, I've always thought of him more as the sort of the boy pointing at the emperor. It doesn't mean that he's got the answers. He's just sort of start shouting things about American foreign policy that are never said before. So one of them is, you know, why aren't we working with the Russians to defeat ISIS, you know, that in, in Iraq? And it's a kind of, okay, why aren't we again? What is the rationale? I have to sort of go back to first principles. I mean, he says a lot of other things, but he then sort of takes some of what, some of Obama's principles, I guess, over you know, th that mockery of Romney, that's sort of the Cold War. What are you talking about? That's from 30 years ago. And then he takes it one step further, doesn't he? Because it's no longer Al-Qaeda, it's China. 
China is the principal threat to American uh, power and influence. You know, he talks about China raping America, stealing its money. It's the greatest bank theft ever, I think he says in some of these early Republican primary debates. And this is the Trump frame, and this will become the dominant frame. And again, he's standing against the blob. And I think, you know, ever since 2003, the Iraq war, and then combined perhaps with 2007, eight with the financial crisis, this uh, positioning being against Washington, being against the blob is just so powerful that it not only sweeps the Democratic leadership candidates away and putting Obama in position, but it also does the same, obviously, with the Republican candidates. Well, I think that if we think about Trump in that election, we can say two things. First of all, is, is that he very much runs a critique of American foreign policy in the Middle East. And that's, I think, really, you know, he has that phrase about basically ending the forever wars. Yeah. And there aren't going to be any wars, he claims, in the Middle East under his um, presidency. And that he is able to draw a line that runs all the way, like from Iraq, all the way through to the failures as he sees it in Obama having to go back into Iraq and, and, and Syria in the air and, and, and not being able to deal with ISIS very effectively. And he ties that to his you know, critique of how the American political class doesn't really know what it's doing and it's not interested in Americans, so to speak. They're kind of like America first and the critique of the forever wars go together. But he's also then, we're nowhere near tough enough on China. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting about the general election contest, so that contest between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, is that she goes to the exact opposite place than Obama went in 2012. She becomes the, we need to get much tougher on Russia mm -hmm. candidate. So I think of it as, which I think I may have said this before, that 2016 election in geopolitical terms is the confront China candidate Trump versus the confront Russia candidate. But what's also interesting then about Hillary Clinton's positioning is her fundamental critique of, like, of Russian power and why America must get tough with it isn't about Ukraine, which had happened two years before in terms of the annexation of Crimea and what was going on in terms of the war in the Donbass. It's about Syria. Yeah. It's, and one of the reasons why many people are on, even in the foreign policy establishment, I think are uncomfortable with her positioning on that is she's saying we need no fly zones in Syria. So that that means that because the Russians are already there, the possibility of a direct confrontation in the air between Russia and um, the US. And I think in a way that helps Trump because it kind of reinforces his the foreign policy establishment wants us to get trapped in wars in the Middle East and we need yeah, to they never learn they never learn we need to concentrate economically on um on, on being tough with China about trade but at the same time because that which really begins with Hillary Clinton herself during the latter part of the election campaign he's up against this charge that he's effectively a Russian stooge then yeah. he finds it very difficult to reset Russia yeah, he finds it very. Yeah, I'm, I spoke to Fiona Hill, you know, Trump's former senior Russia advisor, about this at the time, and I, I remember he, she, she said this thing to me that he's he's a poor Kennedy guy, rise and fall of the great powers. This is a book in the 1980s, which its essential argument, as I understand it, is that you know your foreign capabilities must, must match the size of your economy. You know, you, they can't get too out of line. You know, 
otherwise things start falling apart. She makes the point that, you know, she doesn't think he's ever read the book, but that's his, that's kind of his instincts, is that America has effectively overstretched itself and it's lost focus on its own industrial base, you know, and it's been ripped off by China, effectively. I mean, I think his opening speech, his inauguration speech in 2017 is kind of, you know, extraordinary to go back and read or, or listen to, written a lot by uh, Steve Bannon. But just read you one section to give a sense of how radical Trump's foreign policy threatened to be, at least. Was, For many decades, we've been uh, enriched foreign industry at the, at the expense of American industry, subsidized the army of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our own military, defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own, and spent trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. That's the essential argument of Trumpism. And it's interesting, I was reading a Washington Post piece this morning on the way in that said you can see the counties where Trump won are those which suffered the most from deindustrialization towards Mexico and China in the sort of great free trade deals of the Clinton era. And I think that is such a powerful sort of line to draw from Clinton through to Trump and the effect of economic policy and the sort of changing face of globalization on how America sort of sees the world and reacts under Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that where China's concerned that Trump really directs his confrontational policy towards trade. He starts effectively a trade war in 2018. And then by late 2019, certainly 2020, we see that as a tech yeah. Or particularly taking on Huawei, the Chinese tech firm. I think in a way though, because he actually on that point articulated a fairly broad American consensus, including much of the Democratic Party on get tough with China. Although I think he does help to oh, absolutely. intensify yeah, and I shape agree. it. But he's not an outlier. No, no. But I think that where we can see something that's distinctive in a way is on the Middle East where he both, or all of, I should say, ends the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. He yeah. tries to get completely out of Syria, but is thwarted in terms of complete withdrawal yeah. by various of his advisors and secretaries of state. I think at least one of them resigns uh, over that and then pursues the Abraham yeah. He also tries to get out of Afghanistan and fails yeah. as well. Is the On Israel, his policy is let's try and get as many Arab states as possible to normalize relations with Israel. So it is a like, we're going to not, not be in the Middle East in terms of fighting wars approach, but it's not like we're not having a Middle East strategy. There's quite a, one could argue whether it's like good or bad, mm -hmm. but you can see that it's got a certain kind of strategic logic to it. How much of it he divides himself, maybe another matter, which is tougher on Iran, more support for Israel, more support for Saudi Arabia. And that's really a quite radical shift, I would say, from the policy in this respect in the Middle East that Obama had pursued. And I think what we're going to start talking about after the break is the way in which it's actually quite striking how much of this foreign policy that Biden actually holds on to. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the fact that there couldn't be quite a big distance between Biden and Trump in a contest in the rerun of 2020. Over the future direction, yeah. yeah. the future 
direction. So we'll be coming back to that after the break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, so Helen, in this half, we want to get into the Biden presidency and how what he's inherited from Trump and how he differs from Trump and then that's setting up 2024 and why it's so pivotal. I mean, I was speaking to one official this morning who said there's nothing so lazy as the Western liberal mind when it comes to Trump's foreign policy. And that's because we just have, you know, Trump bad, Biden good, Obama good. And the thing with Trump when you're trying to assess his foreign policy and what Biden inherits and in large part continues is the record it's much more ambiguous than people would sort of have you believe in that he increased lethal military aid to Ukraine, I think, to start with. Got involved in no new wars, which I think is a sort of a big plus for a lot of people. Started shifting America's focus in Europe, I think, to those states in the East that he saw as kind of supportive, but also much more militarily aggressive. So Poland in particular, there was this grand notion of building Fort Trump, wasn't there, and shifting the American troops that are in Germany east. And then, of course, the Abraham Accords and this different focus in, in, in the Middle East. And I was speaking to somebody this morning who said, you know, the Abraham Accords, really striking, haven't fallen apart, despite what's going on in Gaza at the moment. And could still be the salvation. Now, again, the problem with Trump is that there is a lot going on with the Abraham Accords that are good, and there's a lot that's left that the sort of the work hasn't carried on in the Abraham Accords, building on a sort of two-state solution, those kind of things. But the, by sending these businessmen effectively to the Middle East to try and negotiate these terms, bypassing the foreign policy elite, which is effectively what happened, sending Kushner and his friends to, to negotiate these things, something new came out of the Middle East. So again, it, I find it very hard when you're judging foreign policy so up close with Trump and Obama, how to judge them, how to judge their success, because they're, they're so ambiguous, the actual effect of them. I think if we look at it in terms of the question, which is in a way different way of coming in, of what did Biden change yeah. and what did he keep in place? And if we turn, oh, let's start in the Middle East, is the dividing line he tried to draw with Trump through the 2020 election was over the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. And just so we're clear, is that it wasn't over China. Yes, yes. He'd accepted at the point. Even though that right. Biden actually joined the contest for the Democratic nomination was probably the least hawkish of the Democratic 
candidates is by the time we get to the general election, there isn't really any line being drawn. There's a kind of style line being drawn. Biden saying, I'm not going to do it in the kind of cack-handed way, firing off tweets approach to a Yeah, a, a and trade. Trump says something to Biden like, they stole your lunch, Joe. They stole your yeah. lunch. But on the Middle East, I think that the is where the clear dividing line is drawn during the general election campaign, which is the Iran nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's nothing more important to the early Biden administration than resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal. And that isn't just about Iran, I think. It's about getting the price of oil down, but it's also crucially about repairing relations with the European Union states. Yeah, because And this goes back to the point that you've just made like about Poland, regardless of the actual outcomes in terms of policies in the fact that NATO actually did remain in place despite anything that Trump said rhetorically uh, attacking it. Clearly the European Union states and probably Britain as well is just waiting out the end of the Trump presidency and a brand nuclear deal, getting it back was a way of repairing European relations too, but it turned out to be like very difficult to do that. And I think one of the reasons why goes back then to like the Russia question because Russia was not willing to act to help Biden over it in the way in which it looks like help was offered to the Obama administration that the Russia-Iran-China alignment had become tighter and more confrontational with the United States by the time that Biden came um, to the presidency. If we then go a little bit further than make the Middle East a bit bigger, the point where you could say there is clear continuity from Trump to Biden is Afghanistan. Yeah. That actually Biden succeeds in doing what Trump would have liked. And Obama wanted in a way. Well, it's- Obama starts off though, remember by saying that Afghanistan is the good war. Oh yeah, that's, that's true. But by the end, hadn't he sort of, he I'm was- not so sure because Biden always claims that he was the, the one who was the yes, skeptic right. of the Afghanistan war within the upper echelons of the Obama administration. Yeah, no, that's right. Because you had Clinton effectively pushing for the surge in Afghanistan as well. Yeah, I mean, here comes the other great pivot, which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. It's still very hard to know, isn't it, whether that would have happened under Trump or not. And this is the kind of the mad king theory or the madman theory that you never quite know what's going to happen with Trump. He's the guy that is presented with various options to respond to Iran and chooses the one to, you know, assassinate Soleimani, which uh, according to some accounts, you know, that was the third option that nobody thought he would take and he takes it. And actually it was remarkable how few repercussions there were. I think we've touched upon this a mm. bit. There were some uh, some some response from the Iranians. I mean, partly the reason why I think there was less response than there might have been because the Iranians ended up accidentally shooting down a passenger yes. plane in their response um, to it. To that, and then the pandemic. And then the um, pandemic um, happened. I think on Biden and Ukraine, we can see that he starts off with a position that looks like it's more accommodating to Russia over Ukraine, at least in one respect, and that is the removal of the sanctions on the second Nord Stream pipeline Mm -hmm. that happens in May, June of of 2021. And you might, I think, understand that, not so much in terms of being more accommodating to Russia, but being more accommodating to Germany 
and trying to get Germany to be more on side about confrontation with um, China. But clearly from Ukraine's point of view, that didn't look like very supportive. Having said that, in the autumn of 2021, there's quite a strong commitment made to Ukraine in security terms, in terms of a security partnership and an increase in aid uh, again. I think that the interesting thing from the point of view of where the Ukraine war has left the Biden administration before we get to the 7th of October and, and the, the resurgence of the Middle East question in the Israeli-Palestinian form is that strategic opportunity that the Biden administration seemed to see, let's say, in March, April of 2022, so March, April of last year, that a big strategic blow could be inflicted upon Russia. Mm-hmm. If the United States really provided Ukraine with a lot of military and economic aid, that hope has faded away. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the war, so of Russia's invasion, I mean by that, then Biden is quite cautious in what he says. I mean, it's not coming that long after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it's something of like the same kind of language. There are limits to what the United States can do. The United States has to have priorities. But when Ukraine's resistance is a lot stronger than it seems that many in Washington thought that it would be, then it turns into, can we really hurt Russia by backing Ukraine? But that hope has like fallen away. And I think then we've got the contest within American domestic politics re-emerging in which Ukraine is now contested as a foreign policy decision. Yeah. And a way in which it wasn't, I think, for most of 2022, that there was quite a strong consensus across the political Do you think we're back to this sort of confront Russia versus confront China dichotomy then? I think that there's no doubt that there were concerns amongst some people who were very strong on the confront China position that Ukraine was a distraction from confront Russia and that you couldn't do both at the same time. I think that the Biden administration's position, at least from, say, March, April of 2022 until relatively recently, was you can do both at the same time. Absolutely. He's very time. clear about this, isn't he? And, he? and he's done that in relation to the Middle East as well, when he's been asked, is it China or is it supporting Ukraine or engaging with Israel? And he's like, well, we can do both. Yeah, yeah, we can do everything. There's a great clip recently where he says, you know, what are you talking about? We're the greatest power on earth. We're the greatest power that has ever existed on earth. We can, of course, we can do it all. I mean, and that might be true. You know, that might be true. They might have, you look at the strength that they still have, and it is extraordinary. You know, from, from you were talking about his initial response to Ukraine. And it was very interesting how he was kind of leading from the back. He was kind of pushing the Europeans forward and kind of coordinating a Western effort, even though it was the United States that stood behind it all, while seeking to maintain his you know, focus towards China as well. And he is really maintaining that attempt, isn't he, to keep going with the support for Ukraine. I think the latest package was something extraordinary like 80 billion, or was it 80 billion or was it 40 billion? I can't remember. The numbers are just so vast on top of military aid for Israel, two aircraft carriers have gone to the Gulf and then maintaining the focus on Taiwan. 
But you do have a growing movement in in the United States. I think people like Elbridge Colby, who are saying, you know, that, that we're just not focused anywhere near enough on the principal threat. And if, you know, Taiwan is the key, because if Taiwan goes into China's uh, control, effectively, America can't control the Pacific. Uh, it is forced way back. And this has obviously domino effects into what happens to Japan can Japan remain within, accept the kind of American status quo that is accepted since 45? And again, this is where Trump is this kind of, you know, kid pointing at the emperor analogy. It was he that talked about why are we providing this nuclear umbrella to Japan? Why don't we just allow Japan to get their own nuclear weapon and defend themselves? And that is such a radical foreign policy position that I don't think anybody even understood how to respond to that idea you know it's because it, it's going back to such basics that everybody thought of had been kind of agreed in american foreign policy so i think the divide it runs through the republican party right now and it, and, and to some extent it runs through the democratic party as well with the left being more skeptical of support for ukraine down the center in the same way that the right are more skeptical of support for ukraine and you've got figures like mitch mcconnell in the senate who are quite open about their view of the Ukraine war, which is still, we're doing two things at once here. We are uh, rebuilding our military industrial base in all of these red Republican states, is, is what he said. And at the same time, we're inflicting a strategic defeat on one of our principal rivals. He says, you know, what's not to like about this foreign policy? But the Republican base seems in a very different position. And you're seeing that play out in the Republican debates now between the candidates who aren't Donald Trump, who seem entirely split on this. You have Nikki Haley, for instance, saying that it's the Biden position, effectively. We can do both. We have to take on Russia and China. They are a single threat, and we, the United States, need to take them together. And the other candidates who are saying, no, they're taking a Trump position, which is effectively, no, we don't care about Russia it's China who are our principal threat. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, though, that Trump's position is as co co coherent as that. No, it's never coherent. <laughs> because it's, 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 it's instinctive, it's, isn't it? it? But, I, but I think he's a, he's a bit more like all over the place where uh, Russia and Ukraine um, is concerned. I mean, he, the argument he seems to like the most is Ukraine wouldn't have happened. Russia wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if, if I were the, the president. I think, though, that what is happening now is that the basic kind of Russia versus China aspect of it that you just described, Tom, has just been hugely complicated by Hamas's attack on Israel on the 7th of October and then Israel's uh, action in Gaza because it puts the Middle East right back mm -hmm. central to questions and it puts Iran right back in, in the middle of the... Um, Story. I think Iran is always actually a really important part um, of the story through everything that we've been talking about. Not least because it's such a, it became such a clear dividing line in in two thousand and twenty. But I think that what we can see in the last, what really what is now almost like six weeks, certainly like the last month, is that Trump's support in polling against Biden seems to have strengthened. Yeah, really. I mean, it may be a coincidence, but it's not so clear what else is going on that would make that so, because it's not that there's been a significant economic 
deterioration in economic conditions over the last month, six weeks. Some of it is the indictments and the court cases, I guess. But that's been going on for a a while too. Yeah, true. Um, I think that part of it is that the return of the Middle East very much to centre place in all this gives Trump an opportunity to say, basically, I kept the United States safe. I kept Israel safe. Yeah. And that matters in terms of a significant section of the of the Republican base. And it opens up the Biden administration wasn't tough enough about Iran. Because as we know, although it's the case that the Biden administration wasn't able to get a new nuclear deal with Iran, it hasn't quite enforced the sanctions against Iran quite as strongly probably as the Trump administration did it it had reached that agreement that allowed some money to be released to Iran. And I think that has given Trump like a line of attack. But if we go broader than that, actually there's still continuity between Trump and Biden on the Middle East, which is the Abraham Accords, because obviously the, mm-hmm. the position on that from the Biden administration, which it hasn't moved from since the 7th of October, was to try to extend them, to try to bring the most important Arab state in this respect into them, which is Saudi Arabia. And it is fascinating to watch how the Arab states haven't pulled away from those. And Saudi Arabia hasn't moved further away from this. I mean, it clearly wants to be able to sign those accords if it could, you know, and it it seemed from all accounts, it was very close to, to be able to do that before October 7th. And in fact, you know, the very fact that it was close to signing up to them may have been one of the reasons why the attack happened when it did, prompted by Iran, which is the main loser from these accords. I mean, I, I always think with Trump, when you're trying to weigh up what impact a, a sort of second presidency would have in terms of foreign policy. I mean, domestic policy is is an entirely sort of different kettle of fish, you know, and is he a threat to the republic and to democracy and all of those things? They're entirely legitimate questions, which, you know, maybe we can come to in a future episode. But in, in terms of foreign policy, to sort of disentangle the character and this kind of mad king quality to him, you know, what is he going to do? How much of the intellectualizing of Trump that happens within an administration, within the kind of American system to try and make sense of it, to try and make it cohere, how much of that is kind of, you know, uh, ludicrous because it ultimately can't cohere. It's this sort of bag of instincts and aggression and sort of thoughts and things that have gone all the way back to you know 1980s Manhattan and business dealings and all of these kind of things how much can you make that cohere I don't know but you can at least attempt to try and work it through and I think looking at his first presidency and how much has continued through the Biden gives you at least some guide into how he might behave and what kind of constraints exists. So, you know, I think there's a lot of talk, for instance, about he will pull out of NATO. I think it's not clear that he can pull out of NATO. It's not it's not entirely clear. Now, you know, whether that power actually rests with Congress and, and in particular the Senate. But what he can do is he can effectively get rid of the the threat of American power that stands behind it. He can do that through rhetoric and through his own policy positions, you know, that I won't go to war to to protect one member if it's invaded. He can effectively neuter it without 
withdrawing. So I think it's complicated. It's not a question of simply, will he go to a NATO summit and take and pull America out of NATO? And then it's, you know, the policy in the Middle East and to war and to China in general, will he go to war? You know, he didn't go to war in his first term. There was no sort of great catastrophic immediate moment, although we can obviously talk about uh, climate change and leaving the Paris Accords entirely legitimate to say that is a potentially catastrophic decision that that he has made, you know, for the world. But will he actually go to war? And what is his understanding of American power? The way I see it is, he seems to have this kind of grasp of the scale of American power. And it's kind of raw ability, it's raw power that he is seems more willing to use than Obama was ever comfortable. Obama obviously wanted to create coalitions and didn't want to be drawn in anywhere and was very reluctant to use the full force of the American military, whereas Trump seems much more willing, even without being pulled into actual wars. So he, he, the Soleimani well, case... I think that the Soleimani assassination is like is the clear case... Um, yeah. Of that. There was also a, a giant bomb that he used, the sort of mother of bombs that he dropped on Afghanistan at some point. This this sort of There was some bombing in Syria as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and you wonder about the same with how he used American power to force Britain into line over Huawei to basically force European countries to Im- increase their defense spending by threatening to leave NATO and to use the power of the states economically to effectively impose you know sanctions on other countries on Europe on China because it actually it turns out the United States is perhaps one of the only countries that actually can do that in a really significant way and Biden's continued them I was going to say that on Biden on the China question on the China tech war I'd say that the Biden administration has been at least as willing yeah. to put some very direct pressure on other states to get on board with uh, its policies, including on the semiconductor chip question. I think that the China issue probably isn't going to change much. It's not going to be changed that much by the outcome of this presidential election in its own terms. Where it becomes significant in terms of the contest, I think, is of that big strategic choice picture of like, what can the United States do? I think in terms of the Middle East is that we might expect Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trump to be more confrontational about uh, with Iran than, than Biden would be willing to 
be. I'm not sure that there would be that much difference between them in terms of how supportive of Israel they're going to be, though you might get more freewheeling rhetoric from Trump, including some of the things that she's been saying. The Israelis might be more emboldened to act against Iran. Possibly. I think that the place where the outcome is really, a policy is really on the line, is Ukraine. Yeah. Because it's not at all clear that Trump is willing, as things stand, to continue the present policy on Ukraine. Now, it could be the case that actually the war on the ground has changed sufficiently by the time that the election takes place that speculating about it at the moment perhaps does, doesn't get us very far. But that seems to me to be the point. And it, obviously, it does indirectly involve like the NATO question because it's a security of Europe question. It's about the relationship between Russia and European states, what role the European Union is going to play in the reconstruction. Mm of Ukraine, if and when the the war is over, that you can see Trump's, I'm concerned about America first, and Europeans have got to take more responsibility, really coming to the fore. Having said that, you could argue, I think, that choice of strategic priorities is going to come back and face Biden even before we get to the election. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this as we've been talking about it is the question of like how much difference is these differences in individual judgment actually making to the situation? Because even if we go back to like Trump during the 2016 primary, Republican primaries, he was a freewheeling critic of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. When he takes the presidency, the first place he goes on an official visit is Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I don't think the foreign policy establishment in Washington is just sort of battered away as easily as any of these presidents. I mean, that's the lesson of his first term. Yeah. You know, he didn't manage to pull out of Afghanistan. If you were to look at the American presence in the world like a chessboard, it didn't really move very much throughout the Trump presidency. The we I think we ended up with more American forces based in Europe at the end of the Trump presidency than we had at the start. The Middle East obviously shifted a a bit, but, you know, not in the grand strategic frame. When you're facing towards China, as you say, that had already changed. That's not going to change much. I think where it maybe is tested is on decisions that do reach a sort of presidential desk, which is, you know, what do you, in negotiations, or what do you do if somebody invades somewhere, or if the Chinese blockade of Taiwan begins on his watch, what does he do? And then there is no obvious yeah. playbook there. And I wonder whether with Ukraine, it will be a, a question of, he doesn't, does he want to look weak? Because this is one of his selling points that he, or at least what he tries to sell himself as, is the guy where nothing happens because they're too scared to stand up to try something on my watch whether he is able to do a deal with Putin, which is so obviously in Putin's favour after he comes back. I, I find that almost impossible to, to judge. I think maybe we should finish here because of the, there's a certain irony to like where we started. And I think this is going to be a question for Biden, though, before it ever becomes a question for his successor, whoever that turns out to be, is the question of Iraq. Because yeah. what has gone on in terms of the last few weeks have been a number of like rocket attacks from Iranian-backed militias on American military bases yeah. in Iraq. That's the one Middle Eastern country where there is still American 
military bases. And there have been a number of attacks uh, since October the 7th. Uh, if that were to lead to the loss of American life, yeah. that would obviously present a really big question for Joe Biden. If we go back, right back to the beginning of this and say, look, how did Obama win the presidency? It was about getting out of Iraq. And here we are in 2023 with American troops still or some kind still in Iraq and being vulnerable to attack. And I think that you're right in saying that what happens in terms of what shapes these presidents' judgment can be very much like at the mercy of events. Obama was at the mercy of, of Russia from Ukraine over Crimea to Syria. And then Biden's been at the mercy in terms of the um, invasion of Ukraine, which looked to begin with like an opportunity for the United States, but hasn't turned out to be that. Yeah, it's actually very difficult to pivot to Asia, to wind down your presence anywhere. This is a an enormous kind of empire that they are managing, in effect. It's just, it's very difficult to shift it at all. I mean, I think on that Iraq point, we should finish. I mean, I, I just throw this in to, to, to finish. I couldn't help thinking as you were talking there, Helen, of a kind of Jimmy Carter moment. What happens if something bad happens in Iraq in one of these bases? It would be very hard for Biden not to to lose a lot of votes based on effectively looking weak. You, that you didn't respond quickly enough. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Helen, as if we didn't need any more evidence to show that history has a way of coming back at us. As we've been speaking, it has emerged that David Cameron has been asked to become foreign secretary by Rishi Sunak, which is a kind of extraordinary turn of events that I don't think anyone predicted, well, even even yesterday. And so on that basis, we will certainly be turning back to British politics in the next episode, trying to make sense of this pivotal moment, Helen, because it really is, it really is extraordinary. Anyway, that's for, yeah. that's for next week. We are being overtaken by events, but hopefully we'll have some more reflective thoughts on this by next week. See you soon. As ever, please subscribe. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, share it with your friends and family. See you next time.